0: I'm well, welcome to ResearchPod. In this episode Since entering the public sphere in twenty sixteen, Brexit has been an issue shaped by, and at the whims of, media coverage. Contents of that coverage has morphed over the last three years, as specific terminology, personalities, and deadlines have arisen, and media discussion of today's Brexit news is very different from that prior to the referendum. Beyond the ideology and policy in any article or broadcast, the linguistic nuance of coverage has also been in a state of flux. New slogans, phrases, and even individual words have been coined. Risen to common use and then dropped off in popularity throughout the Brexit debate and subsequent negotiations. Dr. Andreas Breake, Cardiff University, has monitored and assessed the ebb and flow of phrases in British media discussing Brexit and is talking with us today about the emergence and lasting use of specific language therein. I'm a senior
1: lecturer at the Centre for Language and Communication Research here in Cardiff, which is uh, within the School of English Communication and Philosophy. I came to Cardiff originally in 2013 as a postdoc, so this was um, about a year after I finished my PhD, to work on a particular project with uh, one of my colleagues here now, Alison Wright, who's an expert in formulaic language and phraseology eventually I ended up as as a senior lecturer.
0: And the topic that we're going to be discussing today mm. was something that came up at a recent conference presentation. Exactly. Can you could tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yes. So earlier in the summer, we had the international conference that sort of is a biannual thing. It's called Corpus Linguistics. And really, it's a focal point for um, researchers into... Language to use what's called linguistic corpora. So these are large collections of texts. So it could be spoken texts or written texts. So it's really a a methodology, as it were, a way of studying the language that unites all of those perspectives of of those people who attend this type of conference. You know, it's a method, but also you you get certain types of insights that you might not get in other ways. So yeah, so I presented a paper entitled Brexit Phraseology.
0: The English language, from my understanding, is uh, notable for being as malleable and quick-changing as it is, and Brexit being a comparatively recent event, how much time does it take for an event to really impact language?
1: This is a really interesting question because it's, it's one of the questions that prompted me to look into this. I did some research earlier about language change over relatively short periods typically in historical linguistics we look at language change over hundreds of years you know and uh and so say syntactic change so the change in grammatical structures is thought to take place very slowly so you you know if you read a text from say a decade or even 50 years ago in terms of the syntactic structure you might not notice much uh, of a difference you really have to go back to a much earlier stage of the language to notice any differences in that regard and so people have generally thought based on this that uh, you know language change is something that takes a very long time that it, you, you know you can't observe really you can only in retrospect By going, as I say, you know, across hundreds of years, can you actually see what's changed? But with my own research focused on phraseology and what I call formulaic language, I've seen that in that area, things, at least in that area, I, I think probably in other areas as well, if you look at it carefully, things do seem to be changing much more rapidly. Perhaps worth saying a few things about what phraseology might be. So please. Phraseology is really the the sort of common phrases or the the common turns of phrasing that we find in language. So you might have idioms there. So get to hang off something mm-hmm. is an idiom, or um, proverbs. You know things like uh, rubbish in, rubbish out is a, is a type of proverb <laughs> that you sometimes hear and then there are more mundane turns of phrase things like with respect to something is a, is a kind of little formula that people use or even things like open letter which is really two words but it's almost like a term you know that has a particular meaning it's it's not a letter that's open but it's
0: its, its own idea
1: pre- precisely and um, or you have things, words that attract each other and go well together. So, for example, utter disgrace. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that is a sort of people, people no tend to slip into disgrace. these words. It's always complete disgrace, absolutely <laughs> <at> 100%. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so people tend to slip into those types of phrases. So this is the type of thing I'm looking at. And as I say, so based on previous research, I found that um, some of these types of things tend to change much more rapidly than we might think. And also, they seem to be linked to what happens within a society at a certain time. And so, of course, you know, with Brexit, it is something that affects a lot of people. You know, society is, I, I think it's probably not overstating it by saying, you know, is somewhat in turmoil because of this. Mm-hmm. So so you would think that we should probably, if we look at the language at that time, you know, we we should probably see some kind of reaction within the language. So it's interesting from the one side to look at uh, Brexit phraseology as a way into the question, can we actually detect language change as it changes and, you know, and how might that happen and etc. So that's sort of asking questions about language. The other thing that I think is interesting to get to when we look at Brexit phraseology is what does society think Mm -hmm. about this topic? You can get at that as well.
0: I had been wondering when you mentioned the multi-word phrases and utter disgrace open letter Mm. how much that relates to the use of slogans and catchphrases which there's a lot of in modern language and modern that's society and definitely around the Brexit debate and then referendum and then I guess marketing and policy since has been kind of dictated sometimes by what is a catchy phrase, what have we heard from politicians or policy makers most in the news and how is that shaping the debate of the idea and the topic of Brexit?
1: That That's correct. So um, it's interesting to see that there are both those types of phrases that as you say, are you know sort of catchphrases that we rather suspect, you know, are deliberate coining. So there may be communication advisors, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who uh, who sort of say, oh well, you know, let's make this a, a catchy phrase or a catchy expression and hope that it catches on, you know, and then that will hopefully sort of give the message a, a, a particular drift, as it were. So, so there is that, but there are also. Um, phrases that come into existence via sort of you know more uh, less deliberate ways as it were because kind of organic precisely because you need you know if if you have a new phenomenon within society such as brexit then and people wish to talk about those then you know that there have to be ways of talking about it now language is very flexible so we can talk about a lot of new things but once you start talking about new things what tends to happen is that there are certain ways of saying these things that sort of become slightly entrenched, You know that, that become the usual ways of, of putting a particular message or a particular thing that you want to say mm. in relation to a, a topic. And this is where it becomes interesting, because then you get the sort of conventionalization that kicks in, which is no longer a thing that is simply an individual expressing him or herself but is now something that becomes a communal thing because mm-hmm. everyone shares in that way of putting things. And, and this is, of course, also where, even though we might have these catchphrases or these deliberate coinings, some of them do enter the larger use, but others don't. And so, <laughs> and so um, if, if it does enter general usage uh, in topical area and language in general, then it becomes something that, uh, you know, we're very interested in.
0: I wonder if we could just go over the methodology of what sure. data went into this analysis. Yes.
1: So uh, for this particular paper, I looked at corpus data, <laughs> since I'm a corpus linguist. So I looked at press reportings, and this includes newspapers, radio broadcasts, etc., And I made two different corpora, so collections of texts. Both of them ran from the date of the referendum to the end of last year, because that's when I prepared the paper. And one of the collection was articles or news items that included the word Brexit and others items that did not include the word Brexit. So from that, I wanted to contrast those two In terms of those turns, those usual phrasings, as it were. So I extracted those usual phrasings and there are procedures to do that. It has to do with how frequently does a certain expression occur, you know. I extracted those from each of those two corpora and then I compared those. So basically looking at the list of those common expressions on the Brexit topic, contrasting it with articles not on Brexit you can then get to a list of those expressions that are only found in those texts that are on the topic of Brexit or within which Brexit is at least mentioned. So that is, is, uh, roughly speaking, is the methodology. So the important thing here is perhaps that I like to approach it in a way that is in a sense quite comprehensive rather than just going for perhaps the more obvious things. It's interesting to see to what extent the things that we might perceive from you know listening to the radio or reading the paper whether those actually show up in the data as well and and some of them did but it's also interesting to see whether there might be perhaps some phrases that have gone as it were under the radar but are just as much part of Brexit phraseology as it were
0: so there's going to be some headline phrases that people will probably be able to think of just from regular coverage like the second referendum hard border, meaningful vote. These are things that you mentioned Brexit and in the, I guess, the thought cloud and people said these are going to be attached phrases that get strung to pretty quickly.
1: Precisely, yeah. So these have shown up in the list and, you know, that's reassuring in a way because it shows, yeah, this is doing what it's meant to do. Mm. So that's good. But then there were lots of other phrases as well and the interesting thing was it wasn't just those Phrases that were fully lexically specific, so with a particular sequence of words, but there are also some that are perhaps more patterns, where they are much more flexible, but they still sort of follow a pattern. So you might have things like post-Brexit, you know, is is a kind of expression, but that's part of a wider pattern that some of these expressions go with things like in the post-Brexit world, in post-Brexit Britain, in the post-Brexit future, and, you know, you can see all of these things emerging from that, or so-and-so has warned of something or other, or the warning that Brexit could, etc., etc., so you see all of these types of patterns emerging from from that, which which are possibly not necessarily what we first think of when we think about, you know, expressions bound up with Brexit.
0: And there's a few that you mentioned there of post-Brexit Britain, of in a post-Brexit future, Mm. that come up with something that is mentioned later on in your presentation about Mm. it being an epoch-defining event. Time will be bound as pre-Brexit and post-Brexit.
1: Well, possibly. Because one one of the questions you see when you look at topical phraseology and topical expressions in this way, there are always people who say, well, look, this has absolutely nothing to do with language itself. This has only to do with things that happen. So you might get these expressions, and you know they're they're sort of here one day and gone the next. They're Mm. not. They're not part of language in any proper sense. So there, there may be expressions like that, you know, who are very topical, you know. But there may be expressions that may stay with us for quite some time. And the one you mentioned is one of those. So even now in the language, when you look at a corpus. One of the expressions that we have is things like after the war Mm. or following World War II. So World War II is a long way away now, but it was a cataclysmic event, as it were. So it seems to me that without wanting to draw too close parallels, because we're uh, talking about language and ideology (laughs) here, Um, uh, but simply in terms of the magnitude of the societal impact Uh, it seems to me that Brexit could be on sufficient enough a scale that those types of expressions might well stay with us, sort of those epoch-type things, so following Brexit or in the post-Brexit era or what have you, that we can already see in the data now. That would be my prediction, possibly, that um, these expressions would stay with us I don't know, in 50 or more years, they will still be part of the language. Mm. So it's not a case that these are just simply topical things that that are here one day and gone the next, necessarily.
0: And you mentioned being on the lookout for any unexpected or any emerging phrases that you didn't think might have been something that people were necessarily expecting to be incorporated in the language in that way. Were there any phrases that you were surprised to see making up a large part of the coverage of Brexit? To some extent, yes.
1: The first thing that you notice, and, and this, although this is something that people might have picked up, generally in corpus linguistics what we can see is that actual idioms or even things like proverbs are very, very rare in actual language use. So a lot of people know these proverbs, although knowledge does differ quite a lot between people. But when we look at you know actual language being produced, these are very, very rare. Mm-hmm. And if they occur, they usually occur just in allusion to it, you know, there are very few people who say when it rains, you know, oh, it's raining cats and dogs, you know. There are very few people who actually use that idiom. But interestingly, in the Brexit discourse as well, the Brexit phraseology, some of these idioms, that are so rare usually, have actually come right to the surface. So, you know, there's the thing about having cake and eating it, mm-hmm. you know, that's been so prominent or cherry picking is another one of those so that are idioms that are not new to brexit but they are such that you know usually we would never expect such a frequency but yes uh, we see them you know shoot right up in frequency in the context of brexit so that wasn't necessarily a, an expected thing another thing that has struck me somewhat are the number of expressions that the patterns around expressing uncertainty. So, the, another phrase that is very, very common is the uncertainty surrounding. Yeah? And then you have these patterns. So, the uncertainty surrounding Brexit, obviously itself, but also the uncertainty surrounding the status of EU nationals, the uncertainty surrounding the UK's future relationship with so and so. And, you know, there's endless patterns there you can make.
0: How many times have we heard of companies changing their practice or closing? Because of the uncertainty surrounding Brexit or...
1: Exactly. So, so you know, these types of things become very useful linguistic tools because, you know, if I say the uncertainty surrounding so-and-so or the uncertainty surrounding Brexit then, you know, this, as you say, is a phrase we hear all the time. And so it's very easy to understand. We know exactly what, what what is meant. You know, we can sort of mentally put it in a drawer and, ah, ah, this is what the person is saying. And this is what phraseology does. It helps us to communicate better in the sense that, you know, we help mutual understanding by using those phrases that we sort of have. An idea of what they are meant to communicate and what sort of concepts surround them.
0: wonder if there's something to be said for some of the phrases you mentioned there Mm. of having cake and eating it cherry picking that so many people who are hearing this phrase and possibly using this phrase are trying to make some sense in their own way of a very complex situation like you wouldn't talk about the selective renegotiation of an eu backstop or the movement of eu nationals but you could Mm. say cherry picking parts of this at the other and that's it makes sense for the general public in a way for the people who aren't involved in Mm -hmm. negotiations, but they get to conceptualize a very complex thing in a very small, manageable package of information of words. Yes. And that is something that do you think is going to affect the way that people have conversations about Brexit, that you can possibly break things down into too small a chunk or too simple an idea?
1: What we can see in some of these phrases is that they're not, perhaps we might say, ideologically neutral. Mm Mm-hmm. So there are phrases that have certain conceptualizations that go along with them. So, you know, if you're talking about cherry picking, then you are, by doing so, automatically implying that cherry picking is not a thing to do, is is a legitimate thing to do. (laughs) Whereas you could possibly conceptualize the idea of that in a different way. So you might say... Oh, I have no idea. But you would have to find a way to express it. But once there is, you see, a conventionalized way of putting this idea across, it's very, very difficult to avoid using that phrase. Mm. But it it has, you know, the the conceptualization around it. There are others like this. So, for example, you might have something like the cliff edge. Mm. So this shows up in the data. So the cliff edge is there, but avoiding the cliff edge or going over the cliff edge or what have you. And in fact, if you look at political cartoons, the cliff edge features very prominently, it's usually the White Cliffs of Dover, but but, uh, it is there. And of course, as soon as you use this phrase, the cliff edge, or going over the cliff edge, or avoiding the cliff edge, you are, in a sense, asserting that there is, A cliff edge, and it's quite a dramatic thing if you think about it, because
0: you know nothing good is at the bottom of a cliff.
1: Well, precisely, you know, it activates a whole load of other things. Mm. Yeah, so so it implies immediately, you know, that it's a catastrophe of some sort. So if you want to talk about a rupture or a transition that isn't smooth, Mm -hmm. then the cliff edge is kind of the phrase that has come to. Used to communicate that, but if you were to be of the persuasion that you know this is really nothing to worry about, etc., which some people interestingly are, then you can say, Oh, there is no cliff edge. But even if you say there is no cliff edge, there you are, there's the picture of the cliff edge. You've used the words cliff edge (laughs) precisely. So, so it, it you know you end up reinforcing that, uh, still. Another example might be the idea that there's lots of phraseology around things like the best possible deal. No deal is better than a bad deal. No deal, of course, is now a thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas that is not necessarily the only way to talk about this type of thing. So the European phraseology is the withdrawal agreement, which is much more precise because, Mm -hmm. of course, there's going to be another agreement, you know, after the withdrawal, etc. But in the data, the withdrawal agreement is not really used very much. So it's always the deal. So no deal best possible deal etc so if you think about an agreement and a deal there are different sorts of concepts that that are attached or information and conceptualizations that are attached to these so an agreement is sort of a very mutual thing where two parties perhaps sit down and sort out their differences and they come to an agreement exactly whereas a deal ah, you know it, it seems to me that a deal is about you know getting the best for yourself, mm. and uh, you know, and and almost sort of trying to push the other person to accept something that may not be so good for them, but is good for you. Yeah, and uh, very mercantile, very exactly, almost yeah. aggressive. Yeah, yeah. And so it's difficult now, even for people who wouldn't perhaps agree with this type of conceptualization of of a withdrawal agreement in this case, not to use this phraseology of talking about no deal or good deal or you know what have you a good deal for Britain and you know all the rest of it it's very difficult to get away from that because we you know within this short period now uh, that we've had to talk about Brexit this has already
0: formed into a convention that people use. And you mentioned that this was going up until the end of 2018?
1: Yeah, so the data we're only up to then uh, for the moment. I
0: was about to say, are there any plans for further analysis from 2019 potentially onwards, depending on how things turn out politically?
1: Yes, I would like to do further work on this, and I've already started on that. So one of the things that would be interesting to see is, you know, we have different phases of this Brexit saga, so we might have, the time before the referendum. So we might have the you know, the campaigning period or even before the campaigning started when it became clear that there was gonna be a referendum. So that might be one period. And then you have another period, you know, between the actual referendum to when Article fifty was triggered. You you can see I'm saying Article 50 was triggered, which is another one of those little phrases. Yeah, mm-hmm. you could, There there's other possibilities to say that. So we might say, you know, invoke Article 50, but it's trigger. It's a bit that's like, the word, know. that's the phrase. Exactly. So we, we're almost bound to uh, use that. So there are these different periods. And as you say, who knows what will happen on the 31st of October, but there is probably going to be another
0: phase of Brexit after that. Who knows how many prime ministers will have been through by the time this That's whole right. thing is done. <laughs>
1: That's right. And so, so one of the things I'm hoping to look at is also, do different phases of Brexit have each their own phraseology, as it were? So if we look at some of the phraseology that, that's in the data, some of it already seems a little bit dated. So, for example, Brexit means Brexit was one of those <laughs> slogans. <a> fond
0: memory <laughs> at this point.
1: Well, it does already have the feel of being antiquated, doesn't it? Yep. So, so that does have that feel as belonging to an earlier period of Brexit. But what we know from phraseological research is also that sometimes these originally start as quotations. I mean, this particular one is a quote attributed to Theresa May. So sometimes what happens is that these quotes sort of develop a life of their own. Yeah? Mm. We call them winged words Yeah, that sort of stay with us um, but maybe become something completely no longer connected to that particular context in which they uh, first were coined. So there is that possibility, and then there, you know, there are other ones of those that we, we really feel are tied to particular periods. You know, no deal is better than a bad deal. When I wrote this paper, it looked like you know that had been consigned to <laughs> an earlier period. Now, now it, it may be making a comeback
0: now. But uh, yeah, recording this in mid August of twenty nineteen. So for anyone listening to this, just for posterity's sake, that's where this fits precisely. Yeah.
1: So it's a sort of comeback. So talking about society and the types of things that society is going through, I think the phraseology, as we've seen, you know, is, is, is almost like a barometer where we can feel the types of things that are going on mm. within a society at a particular time. But they are also interesting because they tell us about how language functions and how it changes. So, it, so there are these two sides to it, which I find fascinating.
0: If people do want to follow your work and keep up to date with your research, what would be the best way for them to keep track of that?
1: I think it would probably be to just look me up on Google, and that will—or there are other search engines available, (laughs) (laughs) nicer ones—and that will direct them to my personal homepage here at Cardiff Uni. So um, I have a list of uh, publications, and people are very welcome to follow up on on any of those. And if any of those are not accessible, I try to publish in open access journals but it's not always possible so if someone were interested in a paper that isn't accessible just drop me an email and I'll send you a copy there's no need to pay
0: for that thank you very much for your time thank you very much